Jeremiah chapter 7 in your Bibles. Verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, and if you practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you're trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I have seen it, declares the Lord." But go now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers as I did at Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I will have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, do not pray for this people, and do not lift up cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. Father, another word through the prophet Jeremiah. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would not float along the superficial this morning. And we would not be afraid to dig in deep. That, Lord, we wouldn't just hear judgment and wander off in our minds, but we would hear Your grace in these things. And that we would be convicted in our hearts by these things. Lord, I don't know Your timing for all things. I don't know... Why in this season we're in Jeremiah? I don't know why on this particular morning we happen to be studying what we are other than it has fallen in our study through the Word. But I know you have a purpose for all things, Lord. And I am not a believer in coincidence. I know you have a reason for this this morning. And I know that you have hearts here among us all who need to hear this Word. I know that, Father, because I needed to hear And I pray, Father, You would speak into our lives, speak into our hearts, change our minds. Direct, Father, our spirits this morning. By Your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Gospel of Luke, and I'm just going to read this to you quickly, Luke chapter 2, verse 41, we hear a story about the young life of Jesus Not recorded in any of the other Gospels. In fact, it's the only story between birth and the beginning of His ministry that we that we have on record. Luke chapter 2, verse 41.
tells us his parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. They supposed him to be in the caravan, and they went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Now what you don't hear in verse 45 there is absolute panic. But I'm sure it was going on. They'd already traveled a day. Then it says in verse 46, After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. They did not understand. And I wonder if we have the same lack of understanding even as Jesus' people today. As the family of Jesus today, sometimes I find myself searching, looking for Jesus. Wondering, asking, where are you, Lord? Where is He? Where is Jesus? The Seattle uh, PI website, January 21st, 2013, Joel Connolly posted this story. Some of you may be aware of this. On Inauguration Day, Mark Driscoll, the pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, tweeted the following. Praying for our president who today will place his hand on a Bible he does not believe to take an oath to a God he likely does not know. It's been retweeted 3,435 times, at least as of Thursday. It's received over 10,333 likes on Facebook. And uh, mostly, there, and, and there's been a great backlash from it, mostly from people who don't know uh, Driscoll or who think that Mark Driscoll should never say something so bold, people who are absolutely shocked. And again, if you know anything about Pastor Mark Driscoll, there's nothing shocking about what he said. The Reverend Sandy Brown of Seattle First United Methodist Church immediately responded via Facebook, and I love it because that's how Christians are supposed to talk to each other. <laughs> She wrote, or he wrote, I don't know, it's Sandy, so it could go either way. Disgustingly unchristian comment by Pastor Mark Driscoll. Shame. And perhaps you agree. All politics aside, perhaps you believe that what Pastor Mark Driscoll said was inappropriate, was over the top, shouldn't have been sent out there, especially for a pastor in his position. Or perhaps you agree with Driscoll and go, right on, you know, maybe you're the one who went, like. (laughs) Here's the thing. Both Pastor Mark Driscoll and Pastor Sandy Brown, they both ascribe to the same Jesus. And what struck me in this is, where, where is Jesus in this? Is he tweeting with Driscoll? Is he ashamed with Brown? Where is Jesus in the temple? Maybe you heard about Pastor Louis Giglio who was invited to give the benediction for the presidential inauguration this past week until it came out 
that he had shockingly preached a sermon several years ago that was opposed to the homosexual lifestyle. And the firestorm of controversy was so great, Pastor Louis Giglio just quietly backed out, withdrawing from giving the benediction for the presidential inauguration. Should he have preached that sermon? Should he have given such an opinion? Should Pastor Rick? (laughs) How do we balance grace and truth? There are so often times where the line between truth and opinion is so, so hard to see. And I've been accused. Rick, you give your opinion too much. Which, ironically, is someone's opinion. (laughs) Your opinion. (laughs) Here's the thing. President Obama, Pastor Mark Driscoll, Sandy Brown, Pastor Louis Giglio, any of the... They are not the issue. The issue is, is grace and truth. The issue is, where is Jesus? Because as Jesus' people, rather than aligning ourselves with different parties or persuasions or individuals on earth, we need to align ourselves with Jesus. But sometimes it's hard to know where Jesus is. Where Jesus stands on a particular issue. I'm not saying that the world is great. I think, praise God for His Word, it's very black and white. It's very clear. And yet... We tend to be gray-thinking people. We have gray matter, you know, in our brains. And that gray matter doesn't always see things so clearly. Where is Jesus? We're told in John 1.18, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth were realized. That means in Jesus we see both. But where is He? Jeremiah chapter 7 is called the Temple Address. For three reasons. Number one, this message was supposed to be given at the temple gate. Probably one of the outer three gates through which the worshiper passed from the outer courtyard into the inner courtyard which held the bronze altar. So at that gate, prior to coming in to worship, God said, Jeremiah, I want you to position yourself and I want you to give this message which goes from chapter 7 through chapter 10 and we did it on Wednesday night. By the way, if you weren't here Wednesday, I strongly encourage you to listen to that teaching. Chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. The nice thing about being at home is you can listen for half an hour. When you get tuckered out by Pastor Rick, you can just hit pause. (laughs) Go get some more coffee, whatever. Because what we're going to do this morning is basically cover the intro to that four-chapter message. The whole message you need to hear. Not from me. You need to hear the whole message God gave to Jeremiah. But he was told to go up there into the temple gate where the worshiper would go through to go into worship. Give this message. Psalm 100 verse 4 tells us, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. And the psalmist is talking about that, coming into the place of worship with praise and thanksgiving. I think we could parallel that on Sunday mornings, on Wednesday nights, that as you come in the door of the barn, the gate that you come in worshiping before you even set foot in here. Rather than coming in, getting settled, all that stuff, and then trying to figure out how to get into worship, that we come already worshiping on our way. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. The Lord tells Jeremiah, I want you to bring the message right there. I want you to interrupt the worship. I want you to stop the people and say these words to them. And that's absolutely significant because the message was not only to be given in the temple gate, it was to be given to the temple goers. 
And don't miss that. Much of Jeremiah is, is prophecy to all of the kingdom of Judah. This is not. This is prophecy specifically to the temple goers of Judah, the church goers, if you will. Look at verse 2 again. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there the word, this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. This is for the temple goers. It's not a generic message to the public. The concern of the Lord here for the temple goer is to those who are coming into the temple without the truth. Those who would enter into the temple as church without conviction. Oh, I know nobody goes to church without any conviction. I know that never happens today. <laughs> he wants to talk to people who are trading out integrity for idolatry. This is a serious, serious message. But there's a third and more insidious reason for the temple address. It's to be given at the temple gate. It's to be given to the temple goers. But it's to be given because the temple itself has become an idol. And when I realized that, this is shocking to me. You see, right around the time that Jeremiah rose up and was called to be a prophet, King Josiah was cleaning up the city was clearing out the land. King Josiah, first king in, in so many eons, who actually came in and drove out the high places and destroyed all the pagan idols and cleaned up the land. His father Manasseh was an, an evil, wicked king. More wicked than any of the kings prior to him. And his son Josiah grows up and says, I will not be like Dad. Which, by the way, tells us you don't have to be. Just because your parents were one way doesn't mean that that's the way you have to be. And Josiah, good King Josiah, does great work. He, he cleanses the land. And then he sets his sight on Jerusalem. He cleanses Jerusalem. And then he sets his sight on the temple. And a massive temple restoration takes place. He says, whatever it costs, do it. Make the temple back the way it's supposed to be. Let's get back to the business of worshiping the Lord. 2 Kings 23 and 24, 2 Chronicles 34 and 35 tell the story. But immediately following the death of Josiah, his son who had reigned for three, three months, Jehoahaz comes along and turns it all right back around. So much for revival. And in that short amount of time, the people go from worshiping in the high places and idols there to worshiping the temple itself as an idol. The false prophets stand up. They begin to hang the people's hopes on the house of the Lord. Listen to this. Look at verse 4. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. It's like you're at a baseball park, you know. The temple of the Lord. The Lord. The Lord. And he repeats it. Because the people are putting all their faith, all their hope in the temple. As long as the temple stands, we're going to be just fine. Look over at chapter 8, verse 11. They heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. You put the two together, what the false prophets were doing is saying, look, we got the temple here. Yeah, we know northern Israel, that kingdom was destroyed. We recognize that, but we have the temple. The temple, the temple. This is our safe place. This is our tower. This is our refuge. And so the temple became the idol. Bible students remember this. Any one or anything that we exalt above the Lord Himself becomes our idol. 
That is your, you may not think that you're idolatrous, but if you have elevated something in your life above the Lord, if you have trust or faith or security in something above or beyond the Lord Himself, it's an idol. And the people had elevated the temple to that place. You know, as we approach the long-awaited time of breaking ground on a new building on our property, part of what I feel called by the Lord to continue to remind you all of, as I am myself reminded, is it is never about the house. It will never be about the house. This fellowship is not about this barn, nor will it be about another building. It has to be about the heart. And whether we meet in a barn or an open field or a sanctuary or the top of a mountain or out on the beach, does not matter. It is never about the house. The Lord even warned David about this back before when David wanted to build a temple. The Lord said, (laughs) you want me to dwell in a house made by human hands? It's not where I live. I'm I'm a little bigger than that, Dave. (laughs) And He allows the temple to be built as a place where the people can come in and pray to Him and bring offering and get a sense of His presence. But that was the point, His presence and not the structure. And yet, many of the people of Judah, they believed that the temple would save them. Lots of people do the same thing today. A lot of people say, my temple, my church, my denomination, my brand, my tradition, that's my security. That's going to save me. That's where I put my faith, my trust. Lord, I'm a Baptist. And he'll say, big deal. And Lord, I'm, I'm a Catholic. And he'll say, I'm not even sure what that word means. <laughs> Lord, I'm a Methodist. Well, I'm sure your methods were wonderful, but none of this has to do with it. Our salvation is not in a place. It is not in a church. It is not in a structure. It is not in a tradition. It never has been. It never will be. Our salvation is in the person of Jesus Christ. And the people had lost sight of that. Where's your security? What are you trusting in? Now maybe you're not one of those who would say, well, it's my church tradition. In fact, if you're here at the bridge, you're probably not relying a lot on church tradition to save you. But maybe you're relying on something else to save you. Maybe it's that, it's that, uh, the job that you're looking for. Man, if I could just get that, that'll save me. You know, maybe it's the refinance. We went through, oh, for crying out loud, the most ridiculous refinance over the last few weeks. We started refinancing our home in September. Guess what? We closed a week ago. I won't get into all the nitty-gritty of it, but you know there's that sense of if we can just get the interest rate down to here, (laughs) then we'll be great. And I'm looking at the bills last night going, yeah, we're, we're, we're okay. But I realized it's no different now than it was then. We're okay because God's taking care of us. Not because suddenly we have a little less mortgage to pay. Where's your security? Paul is in Athens, Greece. And he's walking around there and he's surrounded by altars and idols and temples. And he's looking at all of this. He's making his way through the town. Comes up to the Areopagus and gives that rather famous sermon with very few converts. Acts 17.24, he makes this comment. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Remember that. If you have life, if you have breath, if you have anything, you have it because God 
graciously gave it to you. And if you would have security in this world, it is by the Lord Jesus. And it's not by any effort of your own. Maybe a better question than what is your temple is, who is your temple? That's the problem that Judah had. They made the temple, they, they, they started believing in a what rather than a who. Who is your temple? Revelation 21, verse 22. In a vision of New Jerusalem, the Apostle John wrote the following, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And I can't wait. That's the temple I'm looking forward to. To actually worship in the Lord. To be in the presence of the Lord because He is the temple. This four chapter message begins with a warning to the temple goer. And lifting the awareness of those who enter into temple. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, this is really a message to churchgoers. To those who call themselves Christian. And if you're not a Christian this morning, hey, listen up, because we don't believe ourselves to be righteous people other than by the blood of Jesus, by what Jesus has done. And so we need correction from time to time, course correction, and that's what we have before us this morning. Look at verse 3. I'm going to give you three things to note through this these few verses today. Verse 3, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Verse 5, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. First thing that temple goer needs to understand. The first thing God says is, amend your life to His ways. Before you come into worship, amend your life to His ways. Amend your ways. Amend. The only satisfaction, gang, that is not short-lived is found in Jesus Christ. Amend your life to His ways. The word amend there in the Hebrew is yatab. And it's an interesting word because it means to make glad. To make glad. To to, to satisfy. To make pleasing. And at first I was thinking, oh, that's kind of cool. That means be glad in His ways. Be satisfied in His ways. Enjoy your life more in His ways. But that's not what it means. It's not talking about my gladness. It's not talking about your satisfaction. To amend yourself to His ways... It's about pleasing Him. It's about His satisfaction. It's about His gladness. This is about making the Lord glad. Living lives that bring joy to Him, that satisfy and please Him. Make God glad. That's the t-shirt I want. Make God glad. You know, if we just live by that simple principle, that would change so much. It's not about my happiness. It's not about my enjoyment, my pleasure, my satisfaction. No, it's about making God glad. There's an old song that the Donut Man used to sing. My kids, Corey and Hannah, when they were little kids, we played the Donut Man. We're playing it again. We're back around. And the song is, make your dad glad. Give him lots of kisses, make your dad glad. This is what he misses. I love the song. I made all my kids memorize it. Make your dad glad. And that's what he's saying here. 
amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Make me glad, the Lord says. Bring me joy, the Lord says. Bring me satisfaction and happiness. Amend your life to His ways. All these things. And listen to the list. Practice justice. Care for the alien. The illegal alien. The foreigner. The person who does not belong in your country. The orphan. The widow. He says, don't shed innocent blood. I read that list and I realized these are not social issues. These are not governmental issues. These are church issues. Beware lest our political attitudes change our spiritual attitudes. Let me just confess to you that I have found it interesting that as I have become, well, I'll just say it, more conservative politically, that there have been some critical spiritual attitudes that I have kind of left behind. You know, We need stronger borders. We need to keep the illegals out. And the illegals who are here, we need to kick them out. They need to go back where they are. Now, whatever you think about that politically, you know what the Lord says spiritually? Care about them. Care for them. I'm not talking laws, and I'm not talking how it should be, and fairness, and all that stuff. I'm talking spiritually, we have some responsibilities socially. Oh no, Rick's going social gospel. No, just going gospel. (laughs) To practice justice, and truly to care for the alien, and the orphan, and the widow. I mean, these are church issues. Brothers and, sis- brothers and sisters, we have, we have a First Amendment. We have a First Amendment. And it came long before the American Constitution was written. By word and deed, we need to be amended to righteousness. That's our First Amendment. Freedom of speech! No. Amending yourself to the ways of God. I would put on a higher plane than freedom of speech. We're not talking about a behavior we can turn on and off as we arrive in the temple. We're talking about integrity of faith. To amend myself to His righteousness means whether I'm sitting in church or not, I walk righteously for His sake. I live for His gladness and I do what He has an interest in. Do a word say, just to push this just a slight bit further, on the alien, on the foreigner. And look at how God said Israel was to treat the foreigner in their land. Just spend some time on that in the Old Testament. And it may change your perspective on perhaps how we in Christianity have viewed, or many in Christianity have viewed, the foreigner in our land. How are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to do? Test these things with the Word of God. Integrity of faith, working itself in us and through us completely. Philippians chapter 2, verse 11 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Which means we're not supposed to say, I'm saved! I'm delivered! It's done! And then go about our merry way. Work it out! Go to the gym of the Word and work out! Spend some time on the treadmill of the Spirit. I don't know, that's probably not a very good comment. Spend some time working out in the Lord. You want to become what Eric Little called a muscular Christian? And work out in your salvation. And don't just assume because you've been saved at one point in your life 
That you're not to continue to process these things and to understand these things and to seek the Lord's will in these things and churchgoers, templegoers, to amend our lives to His ways. I'm saved, but I am not fully amended. You know how I know that? Because I have some wrong attitudes that need fixing. And I have some flesh attitudes that rise up from time to time and they need putting down. Amend your life to His ways. Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I know this is shocking, but God is not at work for my good pleasure, but for His. And by the way, you know what that verse follows, where God says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When when the Apostle writes that, it follows His grand statement on the glory of Jesus in His death at the cross. And I point that out because the only way to amend a life to the ways of God is to keep coming to the cross. This this is one of these so simple and so practical things. Our first amendment was the cross. The only way any person could ever amend their lives to the ways of God is by the cross. If you're not one of Jesus' people, that's where you begin. You begin at the cross. If you are one of Jesus' people, you come back to the cross again and again and again. Many of us have been coming to temple for a long time. you know. And I've been asking this from time to time, why do we take communion every week here at the bridge? Because we've got to keep coming back to the cross. And not just here on Sundays. And I'm not just talking about a sacrament. I'm talking about a lifestyle of recognizing the cross. Listen to this passage. one we've actually read many times. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, yeah, nor the drunkards... <laughs> nor revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you know who those people are, right? They're all out there. They're all the non-churchgoers. It's the non-Christian world that he's talking about. Oh, and then Paul says, such were some of you. You ever wonder how they got in here? <laughs> Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And gang, we don't gather here week in and week out to be sure the barn is still standing and therefore our security is good. We come here to recognize first and foremost the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why we worship That's why we open the Word. That's why we share communion. We come back to the cross again and again and and we gather at the Lord's table to be reminded of our past redemption, our present sanctification, and our future glorification that was all bought by Jesus at the cross. The cross is the message. He amends my ways. But I fear that that amendment perhaps is most absent in our message to the lost. Did I lose you there? Let me say this again. He amends my ways, but that amendment is most absent in our message to the lost. Let me explain this. 
I think we need to do a temple heart check on our attitudes toward lost people. Toward those who don't share our Christian values and our Christian mores and our Christian beliefs and our Christian politics. I mean our Christian uh, thoughts about things. We need to do a heart check. Because when Paul describes all these people that as a Christian I would shrink back from, he reminds us, such were some of you. That we are not made up of a distinct group of people who have not been here. We are made up of a people who all were there. Who have all been lost. Who all needed to be cleansed by the cross of Jesus Christ. I uh, was sent this little article, and I want to read you a couple of excerpts from it. This is from Christianity Today. This month came out, uh, and the author is Mark Galley. And the title was The Troubled State of Christian Preaching. That caught my attention. The Troubled State of Christian Preaching. He writes, When the culture takes issue with the church today, it carps about our oppressive sexual ethics, especially our opposition to homosexual behavior, which, by the way, I maintain... Because that's in opposition to the Lord. So don't misunderstand. But he says, this is what culture takes issue with. right? And they do. This is what upsets the culture. That's why Louis Giglio was forced to pull back and not pray at the presidential inauguration was because homosexual and activist groups came out in mass and said, we can't have this person praying over us. Because he's opposed to our lifestyle and our behavior. So again... When the culture takes issue with the church, it carps about our oppressive sexual ethics, or what they view to be oppressive. And our various prosperity gospels, from the most egregious health and wealth messages to the more subtle but equally dangerous sermons on how faith in Christ can improve your marriage, improve your business, improve your self-esteem. Do you know how the world looks at at teaching and sermons like that? It's like Oprah Winfrey Church. I'm not going to get up Sunday morning. I can watch Dr. Phil and get the same thing. And so the world on the outside, with eyes wide open, go, that's Christian silliness. Why would I want any of that? And then there is the regular complaint about our self-righteousness. You've never heard that one, I'm sure. Our incessant habit of pronouncing judgment on our culture, which is grounded in the assumption that sinners are found mostly in that culture outside the church walls. Thus all the sermons about how we need to reform and stand against the culture as if the we is in no need of fundamental reform. Or that the Lord does not have a controversy with His people. Now listen. This really caught my attention. He says, It's interesting that our culture today is rarely scandalized by the preaching of the cross. That's probably because it's a rare theme of Christian preaching these days. Instead, we have been smitten with practical preaching that helps people become successful in life and business and with ethical preaching that tells people how to live better. This is done for the noblest of reasons, to show the gospel relevant to people's daily needs. But one can see where this has gotten us. When the cross is preached, it is often preached in a way that falls on deaf ears. And I read that, and after getting over my own offense about what he was saying, I realized he's absolutely right. The world takes offense with the church today not because of the cross but because of our behaviors and attitudes. Even if they're right. 
Now, again, don't misunderstand me. Should we have standards? Should we have morals? Should we have absolute beliefs? Yes, absolutely we should. But what is our message to the world supposed to be? Paul said, I choose only to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul comes out of Athens after trying to be relevant to the culture, goes to Corinth, and I think a great realization happened there. In Athens, he realized, I was trying to be relevant to the culture, and, and barely anyone was saved, the Bible tells us, Acts 17. Just a few people. He goes to Corinth, and an entire church gets birthed because he says, forget about relevance to culture. Right, Brian? It's not about cultural relevance. It's about biblical accuracy. Forget about that. I'm going to preach the cross. I'm going to preach the cross, the cross, the cross. If someone's going to be offended at your preaching, let them be offended that you tell them you need the sacrificial death of Jesus. Jesus died to save your life. That's the message. Not all these other things that we can get so caught up in. And that's why you know, I come right back to the question as a pastor. Where's Jesus? Is Jesus in the Christian activist marches? Is Jesus standing up for this right or that right or the other right? Or is Jesus dying on the cross? Is Jesus proclaiming the message of His sacrificial death? Where is Jesus in all this? I think we need to amend our lives to His ways. And the only way we're going to amend our lives to His ways, and if you go down the list and think, okay, I'm not going to oppress the alien or the orphan or the widow. I'm not going to shed innocent blood. I'm not going to walk after other. If you start going down the list then you miss the fact that the Hebrew Scriptures are there to show us that we cannot amend our ways. That we're no good at keeping lists. But we find our amendment in the cross of Christ. I should stop right there. That's like the whole sermon. But let's keep going. If we're going to be offensive to the world, let's be offensive by the cross. Let the cross pronounce mercy. Let the cross pronounce judgment. Let the cross pronounce grace. Let the cross pronounce truth. So amend your life to His ways. Come to the cross. Number two, avail your soul of the truth. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4. Again, do not trust in deceptive words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Skip down to verse 8. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. The word deceptive there is shaker in the Hebrew and it means self-deceptive. You are trusting in self-deceptive words. Vain words, empty words, fraudulent words. And if we show up at church thinking that we can fool the Lord or other believers or the world into viewing us as clean people, cleaned up with Bibles and hands and a clean shirt and a happy smile on our face and everything's good, then we're fooling ourselves. If you think he's saying to Judah, you can just come on into the temple and ooh and awe and bring your sacrifice, but live a different way out there, you're fooling yourself. It's deceptive. Verse 9, he says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery? Swear falsely. Now listen, stealing and murder not happening as much among Christians today. Adultery? is a massive problem in the church. Sleeping around. Uh, Sex outside of marriage. As I've told you before, the statistics about that are no different from Christian to non-Christian. It's absolutely stunning. 
And gang, if that's going on in your life, and I don't know that it is in anybody's life, but you need to recognize you are in sin and you need to repent of that and stop it. And entrust yourself to the Lord. You're deceiving yourself if you think you can do that one night during the week and then slide in here Sunday morning and everything's good. Do yourself a favor. Slide in here Sunday morning and repent and come to the cross and find His forgiveness there. And then as Jesus said, go your way and sin no more. He says, will you do these things, swear falsely. And swearing falsely happens a lot among Christians. Oh yeah, I'm there, I believe that. But then we act a different way. Or offer sacrifices to Baal. Well, we don't do that. No, but we offer sacrifices financially to all kinds of things. Walking after other gods which you have not known. He says, will you do all of this and then come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations? It's the whole once saved, always saved argument. You know why people make that argument? Because they want to make sure that they're saved so they can do what they want to do. I just want to know that I'm saved so that I don't have to worry about or think about sin. I can just, you know, live my life and go to church. God is not looking for churchgoers. He's not looking for people to, you know, live deceptively as He's saying here. What are the self-deceptive words? You know, He says very clearly, you're, you're trusting in deceptive words to no avail. The deceptive words, there are three of them and they are in verse 10. We are delivered. You're deceiving yourself. I'm alright. You're alright. Kumbaya, my Lord. It's all good in this house. I feel so good in church, you know. Hey, at least I'm going to church. Temple going is of no avail. Avail your soul of the truth. Avail your soul of the truth. James 1.18 says, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be able, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent, He says, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The proclamation of truth must distinguish the temple. Which is why God sends Jeremiah right into the heart of the temple and says, I want you to proclaim the truth. I want them to hear the truth. Not watered down, mealy mouth, Oscar milk toast preaching. I want you to hear and speak the truth. I um, remember our neighbors growing up lived right across the street from us. And every Sunday morning we'd jump in the car and we'd be heading out and their cars would be there and, and I, as a kid before I ever realized what was going on I knew, realized they didn't go really anywhere I thought well, that was odd but I also started to notice that every Saturday night they got in their cars and headed off I mean like clockwork at the same time about 5 o'clock on Saturday evening they headed out and come back and we came to find out then I noticed something else on the back of their cars were these logos on both of their cars of a man and a woman square dancing Square dancing was their church. That's what they did. That was their thing. That's where they got their fellowship. That's where they got their encouragement. That's what their social interacting was. Nothing wrong with square dancing, although don't ask me to do it. That's where that was church for them. You know what really shocked me? Realizing that that's church for a lot of people. That's where my friends are. That's where I hang out. You know, it's kind of, I do that every week because I get encouraged. 
I like to show up that the music's cool, you know, and so that, that's, kind of, that's my thing. That's my thing that I do. And so I put a bumper sticker on the back of my car that says that's my thing, you know, has my church name on it. I don't ever, can, can we just, shepherds who are here, can we just make a pact that we will never make Bridge Christian Fellowship bumper stickers? I don't want them. I don't want them. I don't want Bridge Christian Fellowship t-shirts. If you want t-shirts, do something like make God glad and we'll pass those out. Okay. No bumper stickers, no t-shirts, no bonding the church, no saying that this is our, our brand, our symbol. Our, forget that. Don't do that. I think it sends a wrong message. What makes church fellowship different than any social organization? And I'll tell you what makes us different. The spirit and the truth. Amen. The Lord says, He's looking for those, Jesus says, who will worship God in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. You cannot worship Him any other way. You have to worship God with your spirit. And worship is a spiritual exercise. And interacting with God has to take place by His Holy Spirit. You can't do it any other way. And you come to Him with the truth. And those two things, by my mind, they define what a church fellowship is supposed to be about. The Spirit and the truth. Deny the Holy Spirit, by the way. Deny His gifts. Deny His power. And you're also denying the truth. Verse 11, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Why does he say, I, even I, have seen it? Of course he's seen it. He's the Lord. Yeah, but the people aren't thinking that way. The people are thinking, well, you know, he's up there and we're down here. And he's not really that aware of what I'm doing outside. I come in the temple, i got to look good, because I know that's where God is. Yeah, he's limited to this. That's, that's where I find him. He's in this box. So out there, it's fine to do whatever. I come in here, God's there, so I've got to clean it up. God says, even I have seen <laughs> what's going on out there. I'm totally aware. I know what's happening. He says, you have turned this house into a den of robbers. Sound familiar? This is so significant. Jesus repeated it when he cleansed the temple. Matthew 21, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. I mean, this is, this is awesome. It's one of my favorite Jesus moments in all the Gospels. You know, because normally you see Jesus teaching. He's bouncing the kids on the knee. You know, He's healing people. He's doing all this great tender stuff. And then He goes to the temple and He just works it. I love it. I love to be standing on the side just going... <laughs> Toad Jesus. Yeah, I'm with him. (laughs) Just driving everything out. And then he says it's written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. He draws it right out of the temple address. You're making this a robber's den. A robber's den. So what was the theft? Physically speaking, it was the money changers ripping people off, right? Charging people money, stealing from them out of their pocketbooks, making them spend more for sacrifices, for sacrificial animals than they needed to, changing out the money. Your money's okay out there, but here at the temple we have special temple money. So we and the exchange rate's a little a little high today. You're gonna lose some on this, but that's okay. And they're ripping people off. But you know what? I think there was something greater going on. A bigger robbery was taking place that the people were not thinking about. Listen to this. In the same account of Jesus cleansing the temple, Mark adds 
this phrase. Mark eleven seventeen. He began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it into a robber's den. What is the theft that is going on? The people were stealing the opportunity for salvation from the nations. And we do the same thing when we play church. It is not bold or brash remarks that keep people from coming to Christ. You know, Mark Driscoll's tweet, whether you say right on Mark or you're opposed to it and think it was shameful and he shouldn't have made it at all, I'll tell you what, that tweet is not going to make or break someone's salvation. That tweet is not going to be the issue. We rob non-believers of their salvation by our own self-deceived temple going. Your life, if it is incongruous with what you're doing on Sunday morning, if your life is different through the week, those who know what you do on Sunday morning will consider salvation a frivolous, foolish, foolish, silly thing. If they see what you do on Sunday makes no difference. We're robbing people. Paul says in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? We have therefore been buried with Him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Have you been baptized? Have you been water baptized? Have you been immersed? Water baptized? If you haven't, we need to meet out of the pond. And I mean today. Because you're depriving yourself of an opportunity to make the statement God wants us to make in obedience, and that is that we have died to the old self. Dying to the old self is so critical, so important, not just for us, but for the world to see. We have died to the way we used to live. It does matter. It does make a difference. Avail yourself of the truth. Because the world is watching. And when my Christianity makes no difference, I become no different than a money changer in the temple, ripping off the unbeliever of the hope of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's trusting deceptive words to no avail. Finally, number three. Alert your heart to Shiloh. Alert your heart to Shiloh. Verse 12. But now go to my place which was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord. Remember, he's speaking through Jeremiah, still in the temple. And I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Again, what does that mean, rising up early and speaking? It means God was talking to the people about this before they even came into the land. Early on in this whole issue, in this whole relationship, covenant relationship with Him, early in the morning, as it were, He was already talking about it. He had been talking about it now for hundreds of years. I rose up early, I talked about it. I gave it to you, I gave it to your fathers. He says, you did not hear. Verse 14, Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by My name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. What happened to Shiloh? You read this and you wonder, okay, he's going to do the same to them that happened. So what happened? When the people first came into the land, for 150 years, the tabernacle sat at Shiloh. 
The Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle stayed there in that place at Shiloh. In the earliest days, that's where sacrifice took place. That's where relationship was, at the tent of meeting. Come meet with me here. And so even as the people began to spread out over those 150 years in the land, they made their uh, journeys three times a year to the tabernacle at Shiloh to worship the Lord and to bring sacrifices. God continued to call them back to Shiloh. Joshua 18.1 says, The whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh, and they set up the tent of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. If you come with us March 2014 to Israel, you will see Shiloh this time. I'm going to make sure that is on the agenda. It's actually in Palestinian territory. Not to worry, it's no more dangerous than Bethlehem. It sits in what's called Area C on the West Bank. There's C, B, and A. Area C, Jews can live and dwell, Israelis, as well as Palestinians. Area B, only Palestinians can live, but Israelis can pass through. Area A, no Israeli is allowed by law to go in. It's too dangerous. Well, Area C, not a bad spot. It's actually a beautiful location. There's a little Jewish community there of about 2,300 people that now live on the hill right above the mound where the tabernacle stood. A little place called Shiloh today. And... Uh, they have a beautiful little synagogue there. It's a lovely town, actually. I, I, when we were there, I thought, boy, I wouldn't mind living here for, you know, if it wasn't Palestinian, this area, this region. If it wasn't kind of you know, dicey, beautiful place. But in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we read the story of Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Samuel. And these two idiots, they say, let's take the ark to battle. That's how we'll fight the Philistines. And they go to Shiloh, they pull the ark out of the temple, and Hophni and Phinehas carry it into battle. And if you know anything about the story, Hophni and Phinehas were killed, the ark was taken custody by the Philistines, and at that point, after that, Shiloh was wiped out. In fact, uh, archaeology uh, shows us that the Philistines trashed Shiloh in 1050 B.C., and the priests fled to Nob. We don't have any more historical account in the Bible except for Psalm 78 where Asaph writes the following. Let me just read it to you. Psalm 78, 56. They tempted and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies. They turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers. They turned aside like a treacherous bow. They provoked Him with their high places and aroused his jealousy with their graven images. When God heard, he was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel so that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which had been pitched among men. He gave up his strength to the enemy and his glory into the hands of the adversaries. That is, the ark went into the hands of the Philistines and Shiloh was lost. Coincidentally, that's Psalm 77. In Psalm 78, Asaph writes prophetically of the rebellion in Judah that would, restore, that would result in the loss of the temple. Shiloh was lost. Now Jerusalem's going to be lost. In both cases, do you see what God does here? He removes His presence. He says, if you're going to stand in rebellion with me, if you're going to play temple, if you're going to play church, I'm going to remove my presence. Jesus says as much, doesn't He? In the book of Revelation chapter 2, He says, you keep doing this, I will come and remove my lampstand from your place. What does that mean? Anyone know what that means specifically when God says to a church, I will remove my lampstand from you? What's He talking about? The Holy Spirit. Oh, you can continue playing church. 
but you will do it without my spirit. And you wonder why churches get dry and dead. By the way, God, Jesus said, I'll remove my lampstand. He was talking about the church at Ephesus, whose biggest problem was they had forgotten their first love. Repent or you're going to lose my spirit. He removes His presence, first at Shiloh, and then at Jerusalem. And it got so bad that in verse 16, He says, as for you, Jeremiah, He's talking to Jeremiah, He says, do not pray for this people. Do not lift up cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with Me, for I do not hear you. One more burden on the back of Jeremiah was that he had to prophesy to the people, but he could not pray for the people. He could not cry out on their behalf. He could not come to the Lord and say, please, Lord, save them, because the Lord says, no, no. You're not allowed to do that. Don't talk to me about the people. But I want you to think about something here as we as we come to a close. What does Shiloh mean? Shiloh in the Hebrew literally means place of rest. Place of rest. It's also the prophetic name for Jesus. You see, Shiloh is not only a place, Shiloh is a person. Genesis 49, verse 11, old Jacob said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Shiloh, the place of rest. Jesus. What's the point? Here's the point. This is all about the temple. It's all about the temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, In Christ Jesus, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together as a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now listen, listen closely, because if you miss this, none of what we've talked about is possible. Whether it's availing yourself of the truth, or, or amending your ways, or being alerted to the warning of Shiloh. Think back to where we started. Joseph and Mary came to the temple. Right? And Jesus says to them in Luke 2.49, Why is it that you're looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my Father's house? Do you come here looking for Jesus? Do you go to church looking for Jesus? Do you not know He has to be in His Father's house? What are you saying, Rick? Where is Jesus in all this? He is in the temple. That's where we find Him. In the temple. What is the temple? You are. You are. And that's where Jesus is. And I don't have to look to the preaching of a Mark Driscoll or a Louis Giglio or a Sandy Brown to find Jesus. Because He's right here. Jesus is in the temple. 
He taught in the temple, right? He healed in the temple. He drove the robbers out of the temple. He restored the temple as a house of prayer. And He's still doing it today. Jesus is the one who is amending lives to His ways, not from outside, but from inside. He's at work in His temple, your body, your life. Jesus is availing souls of the truth from within the temple. He is alerting our hearts to the rest of Shiloh from within the temple. That's why He said, apart from Me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything without Me. That's why He asked to come into our hearts to be in our temple. And that's why I think the right prayer to pray is, Jesus, I need You to live Your life in Me. Not, Jesus, let me live my life for You. Jesus, live Your life in Me. Live Your life in Me. Cleanse this temple. Rebuild, restore this temple. Heal this temple. Teach this temple. Jesus, live Your life in Me. Let's pray that right now. Would you bow your heads? Father, there's so much rhetoric in our world today. Everybody's talking. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody's given their two cents worth. They're tweeting it. They're Facebooking it. They're blogging it. It's in the news. It's 24-7. It's a cacophony of opinion and noise and blah. And Lord Jesus, we need to hear Your voice. Above all the din of our iniquity and sin, we need to hear Your voice. And I ask You, Lord Jesus, that You would live Your life in me. And we pray, and and if You're in agreement with me in this, maybe just lay Your hand over Your heart or, or just direct Your heart to the Lord and pray, Lord Jesus, live Your life in me. Lord Jesus, speak Your words in me. Lord Jesus, amend my ways to Yours. Father, I pray that I might be a man of grace and truth because, Jesus, You are grace and truth dwelling in this temple. And so we bust wide open, Lord, this morning the whole notion of coming to temple, coming to church, because You are dwelling within us. And while we long for the day, Lord, when You are the temple, we recognize the absolute, just mind-boggling wonder that You have called us, each one individually and together as the church, to be the temple within which Your Spirit dwells. Oh Jesus, live Your life in me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.